0: Welcome to CenterWay, and I want to invite Claude up, and he's going to share the word. Thanks, Meredith. If you are logged on to Uversion, you can check out our our service, and you'll be able to see our notes pop up there. Uh, I'm going to... Read a little bit out of uh, the scripture this morning, and as I do, it will uh, magically appear on the screen behind me. So if you don't have a way to access that, no worries, Uh, you'll still be included. Um, We're continuing in a a series uh, called Content of Contentment, Content of Contentment, and uh, what it really is is we're navigating the book of Philippians and so we're going through the book of Philippians every week if you're interested in checking out uh, the prior podcast you can feel free to do that um, this morning we're actually going to be in uh, Philippians chapter 2 uh, verses 5 through 11 last week uh, Eric preached and did a phenomenal job while we were away we were in New Jersey preaching at a church there uh, that has decided to invest in us in this work here which is pretty cool. Um, but um, Eric did a great job, and so I'm thankful to be back. Uh, The section of Scripture I'm going to speak out of, I'm actually going to read it over, and then I'm going to break it down verse by verse. Uh, It's a pretty cool text. Um, It's believed, actually, by many to be an early hymn or a poetic creed, and uh, it's one of the most amazing passages in the Bible, quite honestly. I'm a little bit biased because I'm a huge fan of Philippians in general, Um, but I'm going to go ahead and read through that, and then we'll unpack it together. Uh begins at verse five of chapter two of Philippians, and I'm going to read on through verse eleven. Uh, Paul says this, the Apostle Paul as he's writing to the church in Philippi, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, be with us this morning, that as we go through this text, Lord, that it would be far more than uh, a simple encounter with scripture, but that we would have an encounter with you, the living God, and that we would leave this place forever marked by that and challenged to what it is that you would have us to do with the truth that you reveal. In your name we pray, everyone said, amen, amen. You know, uh, I can't remember a time, honestly, where I taught my kids to say the word mine. There's other things like you, you try to teach your kid to say, um, you know, <laughs> I was going to say you try to teach your kids to say dad, but not if you're mom, um, you're like mama, mama. But uh, of course, my kids said dad first. I hear it's because it's easier to say than mama, but I am totally sticking to me being their favorite from birth. So in either case, uh, there's certain words that you um, try to teach your kids. Like one of the words that I tried to, to teach our kids was um, more. And I can't really take credit for that. Meredith actually taught them taught them a little bit of sign language like this means more. And so at this amazing young age, they're like, muh, muh. I'm like, oh, my gosh. We're like communicating with this little baby and uh, it already has a will. But I don't remember a time where I was ever like mine and then hand it to them. Be like, go ahead. <laughs> you know, this is mine. It's amazing how. Kids just pick that up. How all of a sudden, at a very early age, a kid grabs something, pulls it towards them, and says, Mine. You're like, Where did you learn that? How is that possible? And I can go through a story that would actually embarrass all three of my children uh, because they've all done it at a certain point where they have just gathered a ridiculous amount of things on their lap, in their arms, on their bed, wherever it might be, and just declare, Mine, mine, mine. Uh, Because there's something innately about every single one of us that just says, Mine, mine. And I want to tell you, I don't think we grow out of that. We might think that we do. And, and for most of us, if we talk about gathering you know, items, whether it's a nicer car or a bigger home or whatever, more stuff, we, we say mine, mine, mine. We don't literally say it that way. <laughs> maybe you do, and maybe that's something you need to talk to your spouse about. But in either case, <laughs> you're like, mine, mine. Um, but it, I think it changes a little bit. Um, some of us kind of get to a place where maybe we say, "Well, I, I'm not so much into things for me." I, I know that I felt like I crossed kind of a path in my life where all of a sudden uh, people were asking me, "So, what do you want for Father's Day? Or what do you want for your birthday? Or what do you want for Christmas?" And I was like, "I don't want anything. Like, I don't know. I, I don't care. Like, whatever. I, I don't really want anything." And so, th- there's I think there's something that happens inside of us that that we think we get to a place where we're not wanting stuff, but I want to tell you that that never, that never really ends. There's still the nature there. It just changes. So maybe you're a person that still wants mine, mind mind and still wants stuff. But maybe you're a person that it's changed a little bit. Where you're like, no, I don't really want anything. I don't need anything else. I don't want more stuff. Uh, I, I recently moved about a year ago to this area. And when we moved, I was like, this is ridiculous. Look at all this stuff. Why do we have more stuff? And then we got here and one of our kids had a birthday. I was like, stop getting them stuff. And... and uh, the fact is, it just changes a little bit. It changes more to space. So if you're sitting there saying, well, I don't want any more stuff, um, I think you still declare mine. It just looks different. It looks maybe like a man cave. Or it looks maybe like time alone. I need my time. I need mommy time. I need space. I, I need something that is, give me, it's mine. And so whether it's something physical or whether it's a concept or a space, we never really walk away from this concept of mine, what it is that I deserve, what it is that I want, What it is that I have a right to possess. It's a tension that we all feel and it never really ultimately goes away because at the end of the day, if we're honest with ourselves, we're trying to create our perfect utopia, our perfect place, our kingdom, if you will. And so I want to ask you a question to contemplate as we go through this passage this morning. I want you to think about how are you building your own kingdom? What does it look like for you to build your own kingdom? And uh, if you've ever played Monopoly, you realize that at a very uh, early age also, you have this weird desire to like build and gather and cheat maybe just me. No, I saw a lot of smiles there. Uh, And so this never goes away, this idea of accumulation. As humans, we all, Christian or skeptic, have a desire to get, get, get. But a Christ-centered mindset is counterintuitive. A Christ-centered mindset sounds more like give, give, give. D.R. Carson, a theologian, a modern theologian, in a, in a book, writes this, um, this idea, this concept of how the cross can be viewed from five different perspectives. And this text is really uh, in large part about the cross. And so I'm going to summarize his concepts and kind of oversimplify them. Uh, the first perspective that he kind of gives is God's perspective on the cross. And what he essentially says is that when the cross to God is the absorption of God's wrath. So Jesus dies and it absorbs God's wrath. It, it, it fills the void of God's wrath, the desire for God to, to punish sin. From Christ's perspective, that's the second perspective, the cross symbolizes obedience and love. So it symbolizes obedience and love. He obeyed and he loved us enough to die on a cross. The third perspective is Satan's perspective. Satan's perspective of the cross is defeat. When he looks at the cross, there's defeat involved. From sin's perspective, the debt has been paid. The cross means the debt has been paid. And fifth, and finally, what D.A. Carson says is the final perspective is our perspective of the cross. It means love and freedom. But then he goes on, and the reason why I bring up his quote of these five perspectives is something intriguing. He says the, the cross serves as the supreme standard of behavior. The supreme standard of behavior. We can learn from the cross. Isn't that interesting? Verse 5, uh, Paul says this. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind among yourselves, I like that this is a passage that starts with a perspective that is not often contemplated, and that's the mind of Christ. In other words, the thought process of deity, the idea that the 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 curtain is kind of pulled back here, and what is it to have a Christ-centered mindset? If you're a, a Christian in this room, if you proclaim to be a Christ follower, I want to ask you: Are you known? for your humility and your compassion? Are you known for your humility and compassion? It seems kind of counterintuitive in the world that we live in. Uh, We live in a culture that tells us to look out for ourselves, right? That uh, whatever it is that makes you happy, do it. If it makes you happy, just do it. Like, don't waste any time, just get right to it. In fact, Nike's slogan kind of summarizes its best, just do it. It's kind of the mantra of society. If it feels good, if it seems right, if it makes you happy, just do it. You don't owe anybody an explanation. Just do it. How are you building your own kingdom? I ask again, how are you building your own kingdom? In a culture that's inundated with us first, with our perspective most important, it's all too easy to kind of build your own kingdom and to say, mine, 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 it's about me. I'm going to read through verses 6 and 7 to focus on one word in particular, this word that in the ESV, which I'm reading out of, is form. It says this, Who though, speaking of of Christ Jesus in the, the passage prior, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, I'll get to that in a second, but emptied himself by taking the form, again, of a servant being born in the likeness of men. This idea of form, both the, the these verses, the word form is actually the same word in the original Greek, and it means something deeper than what we kind of allocate form to be. So like when we think of form, our, our mind, or mind in particular, goes to shape, it goes to appearance, and uh, that's much of where we think of when we get to, to form. But the form here means something very different. Uh, form here means the very nature or the essence, the essence of. So so Jesus was the very essence of God, the very form of God. And then moving on to, to verse 7, Jesus is the very essence of a servant, the very essence of humanity, the very nature of humanity. What we're seeing in this passage is Extremely theologically deep. We're seeing in this passage the idea and the concept of the truth that God, that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. He was the very essence of God and the very essence of man. And this is huge because it's really the crux in which salvation hangs on, right? Because if Jesus was simply a good man and not deity, then he didn't fulfill the sin penance that God requires. You see, if he's fully God and he's not fully man, then he has the ability to be God and transcend, but he hasn't paid the man humanity debt of sin. He needs to be both God living sinless, perfect life, and both man fulfilling the wrath that God has towards sin. It can't be one or the other. It has to be both and. And this is what Paul is talking about in this text and this ancient poem here. Verse 6 goes on, uh, if you read through it, um, the part that I said I'd get back to. So, though he was the essence of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. At face value, you might think that what this is saying is that Uh, it's not something that can be attained, but it actually means used for his advantage. So the word grasped here is used to indicate that Jesus didn't have a closed, grasped hand. So literally what what the text is saying is that God, Jesus, decided to not have his hands clenched Listen, God is a giver, not a getter. He's a giver, not a getter. Jesus could have closed his hand and grasped his rights as divine, but instead we see he emptied himself. He emptied himself out. So I want to submit a thought to you for a second. A sign that you're building your own kingdom. A sign that you're building your own kingdom is that it's hard for you to relinquish your rights. If it's difficult for you to relinquish your rights, and instead you want to kind of close that fist, you know, I used the example a couple weeks back about how we sort of sit on our throne as parent sometimes. If you have kids, you know what I mean, where you just sort of look at them and be like, "Quiet!" I'm like, but why? <laughs> because I said, "Be quiet." And I am the benevolent dictator of this household. And so, therefore, what I say goes. And so silence my subjects, you know? And we, we kind of create almost this, this kingdom of sorts where, where they must obey what it is that we decree. And we don't want to relinquish our rights as authority. So it looks that way in home, where maybe we say, because I said so. Maybe at work, when we say, because that's the way it is, or because I'm the boss. Uh, it looks different ways and it takes on different shapes and sizes, but an indicator, a sign that you're trying to build your own kingdom is that it's hard for you to relinquish your rights. We here at Centerway, we have what we call our because and therefore. Our because and therefore. And so one of the because and therefore that we have is because God gave us everything, we value generosity. Therefore, we are open handed and happily go above and beyond with our time, our talent, our treasure. We steward our spiritual gifts and serve. We are contributors, not consumers. So, the because and therefore really is an indicator of what we value. And so, I want to read it again because God gave us everything, we value generosity. Therefore, we are open handed and happily go above and beyond with our time our talent and our treasure. We steward our spiritual gifts and serve. We are contributors, not consumers. How? How? How do we really how do we really get there? Like if if we're all human, if we all are born with this desire to get to get and to gather and to gather, then how do we suddenly just change to generous? How do we go from getter to giver? The easy answer is you just start giving. It's kind of like such a cop-out, isn't it? Like, (laughs) you know what? You want to change that problem that's deep in the core of who you are? Just do something surfacy, and eventually that will somehow change everything. But of course, it doesn't work, right? The problem is it doesn't change anything at its root. You can give begrudgingly, right? You can give resentfully. <laughs> you can give like prying white knuckles. Yeah, no, seriously, take it. Go ahead. You can have it like, but you're not letting go. No, 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 really have it. It's yours. In fact, you can give because you think it will result in you getting. Ever done that? Give for the purpose of getting? I think there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of people with maybe poor theology that get to a place where they say, you know what, if I will just give to God, then I'll just get more. And so are you really giving if the end desire is for you to get? Is it a right heart condition? You see, it's not that easy. It's, it's not that easy to say, listen, we're going to change the root of the issue by simply changing the behavior on the surface because it doesn't change anything. And and we do it uh, in all different types of scenarios where we tell someone to act a different way, but it doesn't change the root of the issue in their heart. See, we're talking about something pretty deep here. We're talking about motivation. We're talking about heart condition. Talking about something that you can't just change by saying, you know what, I'm going to do things differently. If I just do things differently, then suddenly my motivation and my heart condition will somehow magically change. It's not that easy. And so you're doomed. Thank you for coming to Centerway. <laughs> That's kind of the, the tension, right? Like, if, if there's nothing we can do about it, if we're innately getters and not givers, and we can't change it by simply becoming a giver, then what are the options? Let's read on. Verse 7. It says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. Jesus didn't surrender his deity. He surrendered his rights as deity. Right? And you have to, to realize that. I think, um, I think Brian Chappell, in a, in a book about um, illustrating Christ coming to earth, I think he illustrates it best. He equates a um, a tribe, uh, and the, the tribe has a chief, and the chief is is dressing all is dressed in all of his chiefly garb, uh, a headdress, as it were, and all of these different things. And uh, one day, a tribesman comes up to the chief and says, uh, "Someone is stuck in a hole, and we can't we can't get him out." Uh, there's, there's a ditch, we can't get him out. We've tried, all of us have tried and we can't get him out. He was probably gonna die there. And so the chief being the strongest person in the tribe uh, comes over and looks down into this ditch, this deep ditch, and there's a man stuck at the bottom and he's injured. They've tried everything. They've thrown things down to him. They can't pull it up. Um, people have been lowered down. They can pull that person up, but they don't have the strength to hold that man as well. And so the chief takes off all of his chiefly wearings his headdress and all of those things and he climbs down into the hole and he gets this man that cannot climb out on his own strength and he puts him over his shoulders and he climbs out of the hole it's a picture of that which god did we were incapable of saving ourselves incapable. No one was strong enough. No one was good enough. You can't be sinless enough. And so time and time again, all throughout the Old Testament, you see people that tried to keep all of the rules. If you look back uh, into the, the Pentateuch, there's over 600 rules that needed to be kept. And people continued to fail and fail and fall short. And so ultimately, God takes all of his rights and lays the rights of his deity aside and comes down into the muck and the, the dirt of the earth and picks up mankind and lifts him out of the impending death. And demise. You see, Jesus didn't surrender his deity. He surrendered his rights as deity. Jesus did what no one else could do for you and for me. If we move on, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, the Jews believed that... If you, died on a cro- uh, if you died on a cross, if you were crucified, that you were actually cursed. It was the worst possible death uh, you could have because it had implications not only for the physical pain, but it also had this, um, this negative light that was shined upon you and your family as being cursed. And so Jesus humbles himself not only to death because death is what was required in order for us to come into right relationship with God. The, the, the penance for the sin of our lives. So he could have died countless ways. But he died the most humiliating way a person could die in that time. Not only the most painful, but the most humbling. He humbles himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore, for this reason. Because of that, because of his obedience, because of his humility, because of his willingness to be humble, therefore God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. Because of his obedience and humility, he is Lord. Verses 10 through 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Listen, we will declare him Lord. We will declare him Lord, either on earth or in death. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And so I want to ask you, will you humble yourself? because that's where it starts. It starts with humility. The tension I talked about before, the idea of of how is it that we get to a place of being a a giver instead of a getter, it, it starts with humility. One of the contents of contentment is humility. It seems counterintuitive to say, listen, if I want contentment in this life, if I want peace, if I want joy, if I want the ease of life, that one of the contents of what it requires of me is humility, seems like it doesn't make sense. It seems like if I had peace, then finally I would come to a place where I would just humble myself and be like, all right, I'm living the good life. And so listen, you first, you go ahead. But it's the opposite. We become givers as an outflow of the awareness of what we have been given. If you don't fully realize what it is that God has done for you, if you don't fully understand what it is that you've been given, then why would you ever give? Because God gave us everything, we value generosity. That's why. Because he gave us everything. You see, it's a change in perspective. Owners have the right to live with closed hands. So until you realize that you are a steward, you won't be able to open your hands. Let me say that one more time. It's something that I talked to the lead team about months ago or weeks ago at the very least. Owners have the right to live with closed hands. That's mine. It's mine, right? Mine, 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 mine. Until you realize that you are a steward, you won't be able to open your hands. So if I had a $100 bill, It'd be really cool if I had $100 to illustrate, um, but I don't. And so if I had a $100 bill and I was like, hey, here's the deal. Um, This is my $100 and I give it to Mike and I say, hey, Mike, uh, can you give this $100 to Derek? Mike would do that, right? Why? Because it's not his $100. So he doesn't have any right to really say anything. He's just the steward of my money. And so when I say, hey, give it to Derek, he can easily turn around and be like, oh, here you go, dude. And Derek's like, sweet, 100 bucks. He can just put it into his fat stack that he already has in his wallet. But, you know, if all of a sudden I look at Mike and say, hey, Mike, uh, yeah, I have a $100 bill. And he's like, of course I do. Alicia just gave it to me (laughs) because she has all the money. And so (laughs) then (laughs) I would say, hey, Mike, give that $100 bill to Derek he'd be like, uh, why? I'd be like, uh, just because you should be a giver. Give your $100 to Derek. Well, I don't want to. Now he has a right to say that, right? Why? Because he is the owner of that $100. And so it's a game changer. Ownership versus stewardship. When we think we're owners, we can hold it white knuckled. Why? Because it's ours. I worked hard for this. I earned this. This is mine. Gimme, give gimme, give gimme. Give this is me, mine, mine. <laughs> but if we are stewards, then all of a sudden, we have the ability to be obedient to the voice of God. We have the capacity to be generous. So what does it look like when we become stewards instead of owners of our relationships? Then all of a sudden, we can live with an open hand and it's not an accusation. It's not defensiveness. It's the idea that God has given me a responsibility to function a specific way in this relationship, and so I will exemplify him, and so I'll live with an open hand, not with my expectations, but instead the realization that I am simply a steward of what it is that God owns. The easiest example is our finances. I think you come into churches a lot, and they talk about money, and the reason why people get so defensive about money is because they don't understand this principle. They don't understand stewardship. And so they're sitting there like, they want what's mine. Like, really? Is it possible instead that if there's a season of, if there's a mentality of stewardship, that it's more the idea of saying, how are you stewarding your finances? And is it possible that you can leverage your finances to the furtherance of the kingdom for his glory? You see, all of a sudden, the way you deal with your finances is transformed, not because uh, it's a right investment into a nonprofit organization that will give me some type of a return, if (laughs) at the very least, it will make me feel benevolent, (laughs) because after all, I'm so generous, right? Uh, Giving for the sake of yourself. But instead, this idea of saying, listen, I've been given so much. I taught um, on tithing and the idea, the concept of finances in youth ministry, it feels like a lifetime ago. And uh, there was a a teenager that asked if they could talk a little bit about what they learned. And uh, he got up and he said, I realized uh, after I had a lot of tension with this idea of tithing, that it wasn't really about God wanting my 10%. It was that God is allowing me to keep 90% of what it is he's given me. I was like, oh, that's a pretty profound concept. Like, like, for a moment there, he gets it. Like, yeah, if it's all God's, then to, to give back 10% or to give whatever it is, all of a sudden it's not about prying my hand open to take something that's mine. It's the truth of the gospel resting in my heart and realizing God has given me so much. But I digress because this isn't a talk about finances. It's simply an illustration of a place in which we can say, Mind, mind, gimme, gimme. <clears throat> it goes beyond that. Goes into work. What does it look like if you are the steward of your work environment, your work relationships, school? The idea that the hallways that you walk in are more of an idea that that God has strategically placed you in that place to be a beacon of humility and love and grace to those that you come in contact with. Will you humble yourself? Will you humble yourself? You see, because that's the root issue it's humility. If we can get to a place of humility and acknowledge that which God has done for us, then all of a sudden, the outflow of that becomes easy. Becomes far easy to to be a generous giver of our time, of our talent, and of our treasure. This text this morning, it requires something from every single one of us. And so I want you to consider, I want you to consider what it requires of you. And I want to ask you a question to contemplate as we leave this place and maybe something that you even ask yourself is, as you drive home or whatever that looks like. The question is this, what can I do today to grow in an others-focused mindset? To grow in an others-focused mindset. And the reason why is because you don't just, oh, others matter. I get it. Oh my gosh, I'm going to be nice now. Yeah, everything's different. Actually, I'm going to be generous. Let me get my wallet and dump it right now. Like, I'm not talking about this weird um, behavior modification tension. I'm talking about the idea of saying, I need to grow in my capacity to be others-focused. Jesus, at the cross, displayed in others-focused humility. And so therefore, it should compel us there has to be something that's required from each and every one of us this morning. And so I want, you to challenge, I want to challenge you to contemplate that. If you would, just bow your heads for a moment, just for the sake of not being um, sort of distracted as there'll be some moving around. <clears throat> with your head bowed, I want you to consider the possibility that maybe the application for you is to come into relationship with Christ for the first time. That maybe with head knowledge, you've thought, oh, okay, Jesus died on a cross. I get it. Box checked. But you haven't been living the implications of that reality. And so I want to give you the opportunity. And I'm not going to make you come forward or even raise your hand this morning or anything like that. I'm, just, I'm going to ask that in the quietness of your mind, if that's you, that you would simply say, Lord, would you forgive me? For the sins that I've committed, I know that you died for me and paid the penalty that I could never pay. Would you come and be the Lord and leader of my life? It's that simple. And, and if you pray that prayer in the quietness of your mind, I'd love to have a conversation with you about what's next. Because I don't want an emotional response this morning. I don't want to create a hoop for you to jump through. I just I want to have a conversation if you feel like that's a decision you want to make. I'd love to talk to you about it. For everyone else in the room this morning, I wanna challenge you to consider the stewardship principle. What does that mean? What are the implications in your life? If the outflow is generosity, what does it look like to change your perspective on this mine mentality? What are the implications in, in your relationships? What does it look like if the relationship isn't about you and about what you want and this idea of just do it and the idea of, of just get more and whatever makes me happy, if it's more about stewarding that which God has given you, what are the implications? What are the implications on your finances? What does it look like? I don't know, I'm not here to tell you this morning that And it means that you have to jump all in on tithing. Maybe it starts with, I think I'm gonna give something. I think I'm gonna allow my white knuckledness to loosen a little. Maybe you're faithful with your finances. Maybe God's blessed you in huge ways as a result. So maybe it means being extravagant in your giving. I don't know, but I know God wants something I know he wants to to change something in your heart today. For others of you this morning, if you're saying, listen, I live the stewardship principle, like that really is me, I've crossed that line of faith and I really do think more as a steward than an owner, then I want to challenge you to be a doer. To be a doer with that which you know and allow the Holy Spirit to to reveal to you right now what it looks like for you to grow in an others-focused mindset. Maybe it means serving here in some way. Beyond the way that you already are, maybe it means something else that we haven't yet considered. I I don't know. I want to leave room and space for the Lord to speak to each and every one of you. This isn't about Claude's ideas. This is about the Lord doing something in each and every one of us. So if you would, just stand to your feet for for a moment. We're going to go into a time of worship. And I want to lead us in a prayer before we do that as a response. And, and you know, worship is a a response to the truth that God has revealed to assign him worth. Maybe the application for you this morning is to, maybe you already give, but maybe your giving looks different this morning. And so I'm I'm going to throw this out here just because it dawned on me and if it's just me, we, you can throw the idea out. But maybe today, as, as, a, as a regular giver, and if you've already done that, I know a lot of you give online, but um, the way we give here, and you'll hear more about this, is this box up here. You can drop an envelope in it. If this morning you want to sit and just pray over that gift and say, listen, let's, let's do this as a symbol of, of humility, a symbol of giving, because of what God has given to us, and you want to turn that into a spiritual form of adoration and worship, then I want to provide space for that. That's all I'm saying. And so if, if you don't want to do that, you don't have to. It's just, I think oftentimes we turn worship into just a song time, and it's so much more than that. So I want to provide opportunity for that. Let's pray before we go into that time. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful. thankful that we have the opportunity to come into this place and to commit to doing life together. Not because we're perfect, not because we've figured it all out, or because um, we know all the things that need to be known, but instead we come to this place uh, humbled by the reality of what we don't know. Overwhelmed by the awareness of your love your grace, your willingness to set aside your rights as deity and to come down into our lives to know us, and that that truth, Father, would grow us this morning as we leave this place. We're thankful for your presence. We worship you. We worship you, Lord.